This is an ABC podcast. So, I've found my way to the Malaysian capital, Kuala Lumpur. It is everything you imagine a throbbing Southeast Asian capital to be. It's, it's layers upon layers upon layers of development, of raised highways and railways, of, of huge billboards. And, and in KL, there's no better symbol of the city's development than the twin Patronus Towers I can see there, gleaming, gleaming in the distance. They're the headquarters of Malaysia's state gas and oil company. And when they topped out in 1998, they were the world's tallest skyscrapers. That was a title that only lasted four years. Taller buildings in in Taipei and Dubai overtook them. Nonetheless, they remain the world's tallest twin towers. But they're also a symbol of Malaysia's modern story, a tale of prosperity that can't be separated from resource extraction. Since its modern inception, Malaysia has been a global supplier of many things, tin, palm oil, timber, liquefied natural gas. But it's rubber you need to follow to understand the modern melting pot that created the capital I'm in today, Kuala Lumpur. Attention passengers. I'm Jonathan Green. This is Return Ticket, the podcast that takes you on journeys of the mind to the near and the far flung. In this series, we'll embark on travels to Paris by bread, Las Vegas by numbers, and sync with the rhythms of Ho Chi Minh City. So join us and find the unexpected in the familiar in destinations popular and obscure. imagine my time in KL, I, I never thought I would come across this. I'm in a suburb called Kampung Baru. It's in the middle of Kuala Lumpur's CBD. And looking around me now, I could be in, in an idyllic rural Malay village. And that's what it started as. When it was created in 1899, this was the city's food basket. Then, as agriculture moved further out of KL, it became an enclave for rural Malay migrants wanting to make it big in the city. It became the base for migrants to sleep, cook, socialise outside of the rhythms dictated by shifts on rubber farms or in the tin mines. And that rural lineage still exists in this village today. There are traditional wooden Malay houses raised on stilts. It's a bit bit like Queenslanders back home in Australia. But all up, there's around 79 hectares of this this low village density in the heart of KL. Out on the horizon, well, there's a wall of skyscrapers. And there, there, there they are again. The Patronus Towers, a totem of this city. But I've come here because local foodie and architecture expert Naj Arafin has, has asked me to meet him here. He's going to show me the, the multicultural foodways that make up this city. Nadge, hi. Uh, thanks for taking me on this tour. It's, it's wonderful. Hi, Jonathan. Good to meet you. 
it's, I mean, it would be an extraordinary place to, to find still in, in the heart of this, this huge bustling city. There is, there is peace and green here, and, and the buildings, they seem very traditional. Yes, well, much has changed, but you can still find uh, quite a number of traditional timber Malay houses. That house there, it's uh, very typical, it's uh, raised on stilts, and um, uh, being raised on stilts uh, is a very traditional thing all around, not just uh, Kuala Lumpur, not just Malaysia, but also in pretty much uh, the Malay archipelago, where it's a very intelligent way of building at the turn of the 20th century, this was farming was the intent of this place. Is that still the case? I mean, who lives here now? Well, no, of course, uh, it has already been uh, urbanised, although it still has that uh, kampung or village feel to it, as you can see, although a high-rise development is encroaching. And um, it's likely that we might lose Kampung Baru in years to come because of the pressure of development. Nadge, it is, I mean, and this happens to us all the time. It must be snack yeah. time, I think. We, we need to go oh, in search yes. of food. And this is the place to be, in Kampung Baru. <laughs> Okay, here we've reached uh, Jalan Raja Muda Musa and this is like the food street of KL and you can find just about any kind of food here at the heart of Kampung Baru. But let me tell you about one, you could say, our Malaysian national dish, nasi lemak. In this simple rice dish, which has to be cooked in coconut milk, okay, mm -hmm. um, you always have a basic addition of the sambal or the sauce, which is made from chilies and fried anchovies, as well as fried peanuts, a few slices of cucumber and any kind of leafy green vegetable, uh, if you can. Also, at least a slice of boiled egg. So in that simple dish, you have a wholesome meal in itself. Of course, KL is, is, is a meeting place of, of, of different cuisines. We'll, yes. we'll find the food of other parts of the world here as well. Oh, you find, uh, because we have a wonderful diversity of uh, population, we have our Malaysian Chinese, Malaysian Indian, besides the uh, native groups, including the Malay. So you have such a diversity of cuisine and uh, they also intermix or influence each other. You know, so it's a very... Very good mix. You could say food unites us. It's a wonderful, a wonderful idea. I mean, that unifying idea of the stomach. Yes. <laughs> it's a beautiful, a, a beautiful note on which which to end, Nadge. Thank you yes. for that. Thank you for that tour. Thank you for so many beautiful and, and My surprising and elements. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you may be most welcome in this beautiful city. Thank you. Uh, a few stops south of Kampong Baru, uh, I swept over parts of the Klang River on the way over. The, the light rail has raised several metres up on, on concrete platforms. And now I find myself in the beating commercial heart of KL. Around me there are, there are signs and, and symbols of Malaysia's modern multiculturalism almost, almost everywhere. And nearby uh, there are little enclaves of Little India and Chinatown. 
And while Kuala Lumpur's contemporary multiculturalism can seem like a almost a fait accompli, this was not always so. One of Malaysia's darkest chapters happened in this city on May 13, 1969. Long-running Sino-Malay tensions, they boiled over into deadly riots. The official death toll is 196, but that's disputed. Some, Western diplomats, for example, put it closer to 600. Following these riots, the the Malaysian state enacted affirmative action for Indigenous Malaysians, a, a policy that continues to privilege Indigenous groups above other ethnicities across Malaysian society. It's a policy that continues to be a sore point today, but in KL... Well, the city's prosperity has been a a kind of palimpsest over history. In the late 19th century, Kuala Lumpur was was a place that was the beneficiary of immigration and and the influx of global capital. During the early 20th century, the money coming in from tin and, yes, rubber, fueled a construction boom that brought many migrant workers to the city, many of whom had a role in in building this modern metropolis, this KL today. And with rubber's riches, there came art deco architecture. That was a period in design that came about in the the early 20th century. And it broke with stuffy Victorian architecture and, and embraced the new. In came sleek lines, geometric patterns, smooth building materials like tiles, stucco or glazed brick. And remember, This is a time of profound technological change with cars, aeroplanes, radios stitching together more parts of the globe. With Art Deco, well, there was no better style to broadcast your membership of a new kind of global cosmopolitanism. Now, in a moment, you're about to meet my friend Sunzu Speechley. He was born in KL, raised in Melbourne, and he's a pretty big deal in architecture research. He got his PhD this year, and the first ever uh, to survey Malayan classical architecture. Sunzu, hello. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome to KL. This building? What, what is this building? Uh, so this is the Lee Rubber Building. Um, it was at one point the tallest building in KL when it was built in 1930. And it's a great symbol of what rubber did for the city. I'm not expecting Art Deco as a <laughs> architectural language in this city. No, it's, uh, it's always a bit of a surprise for visitors, but uh, because of the wealth that was brought in by rubber in the 1920s and 30s, you've got some great buildings designed by Art Deco architects in this period. Uh, so this building, for example, was designed by Arthur Oakley Coltman, who was the premier Art Deco architect in KL at the time. And the, the, the city before that? I mean, what was the sort of the show-off style pre-rubber? KL had rapid growth in the late 1800s. If rubber, you know, made the city rich in the 20th century, then it was tin that really built the city in the beginning. From the 1880s or 90s, the British colonial government in Selangor, uh, they brought in what was known as the Indo-Saracenic style from India. You used a big word then. What was that? Indo what? (laughs) Indo-Saracenic. It is a style that was actually imported to Malaysia by the British who adopted elements of Mughal architecture in Britain. India. 
And when they began this sort of, you know, colonial enterprise in the Malay Peninsula, a way to ingratiate themselves with the local Muslim elite was to build in this, you know, overtly Islamic style. Hmm. But it's, of course, not native to Malaysia at all. And so it's an interesting thing because they've effectively brought a sort of Indian style to Malaysia. Now, Suzu, our, our, next, our next stop's a little, a little bit further away. You, you, you're going to bike me there, I think. <laughs> Yep, so now we'll head over to Jalanampung, another major road in KL, and we'll visit the Rubber Research Institute in Malaysia. All right, how are we getting there? Well, grab this helmet. Ooh, ooh. <clears throat> okay, uh, helmet on. Oh, God, I've got such a big head. Sunzu, well, well ridden, safely done. <laughs> and here we are, the, the Rubber Research Institute of Malaysia. That's a very grand title. Yeah, so this is another building designed by Arthur Oakley Coltman, who designed the Lee Rubber Building. And it was built just a few years later in 1937. Uh, this was an important place. I mean, by the Second World War, Malaysia was the biggest exporter of rubber in the world. So this was very much the hub of all sort of rubber research. Uh, it's where trials were done for plantations, where new rubber products were being developed. And you get hints about this in the facade of the building. So if you look at those little plaster details, they look like classical oh, drapery. Yes. But they're actually stylized sheets of rubber drying. <laughs> What a, what a wonderful thing. <laughs> so the rubber trade, I mean, it, it brings in a lot of opulence and wealth. And, of course, th th these estates require a workforce. Yes. So in some ways, you know, much like the architecture I was talking about, it's also the labor force that gets imported. So a lot of the people who worked in the early rubber industry were Tamil laborers, mostly, who were brought over from British India. It's something that's easy to forget when we look at the opulence of those buildings that, you know, a lot of this industry was built on the backs of people who aren't really celebrated today. They worked under such extremely backbreaking conditions, you know, planting rubber trees by hand initially. Um, it's easy to, you know, focus on the big buildings, but without the laborers who came in, KL wouldn't be KL that it is today. So that, that is a beautifully rich, architectural and cultural tour but i've got to head north from here um i need to head to the bus depot actually do you think you could uh, maybe give me a lift let's go okay helmet back on was a long overnight bus ride. Right now, I'm, I'm in northern Malaysia, close to the Thai border. The light, the light is amazing. You, sh you should see it. it it's, it's just a little bit past dawn here, uh, and, and golden hour has well and truly begun. The sunlight, it's dappling through the, the tree canopy. You can, you can hear the, the nearby forest waking up. It is a magical place. I'm in a region called Padang Terup. 
a district within the Malaysian state of Kedah. And I'm well past the usual tourist hotspots like, like Penang. My chat with Sunzu made me, made me curious about where Malaysia's rubber producers are found today. So to find them, you need to get out of KL and onto some rubber farms. And Padang Tarap is, well, a region where small rubber holdings flourish. There's about 11,000 small holders spread across some 20,000 hectares here. In a few hours' time, this area will be teeming with smallhold farmers out to extract natural latex from these trees, these rows of beautiful trees around me. This process is called rubber tapping. It's a simple exercise, uh, one that involves a small cup, a hook knife, and of course, a delicate expert incision into the very bark of the tree. And the idea is to tap ever so slightly to start the trickle of the white milky liquid, the latex that eventually will harden into rubber. Oh wow, there's, uh, great, there's a farmer already. Hello. Hello. Now, rubber trees are not indigenous to Malaysia. They originate in the Amazon. But in 1877, British authorities took some Brazilian seeds over to the Malay Peninsula, and after cultivating them, they took off. By 1896, the first Malaysian plantation was operational, and by 1930, Malaysia was the world's largest supplier of natural rubber. Today, well, it's, it's a different story. Malaysia is now the world's ninth largest supplier of natural rubber. The country simply isn't as dependent on the trade as it once was. And of course, synthetic rubber is now a thing. Over time, there's been a decline in people willing to do the work, particularly when there's more money to be had in other crops. Now, in a minute, I'm going to meet a father and son duo who can help me understand this slow decline. They're pretty notable rubber experts. Aziz Abdul has seen it all. He's a world leader in Malaysian rubber and now leads a global rubber research institute. And his son Amar, well, sustainable agriculture is his passion. You can find him at the University of Queensland. But they've made a special visit home to meet me here today. And they're waiting for me in that old manager's bungalow up on the hill. Amar, Abdul, thank, thank you for meeting me here in this, this beautiful place. Thank you for having me. Aziz, how would you describe what I just walked through out there? This is a small holding. It's a farm. So this is about two hectares in area. And that's typical of the uh, small holdings, almost worldwide. And the owner is about 65 years old. And the rubber trees is about 20 years old, which means it has been replanted about 20 years ago, but you can start tapping the trees after six or seven years. Tapping those trees, how much latex would, would they produce? Normally per year for the two hectares, about three tons. They get about three tons of dry rubber. So with the current price, it's about two ringgit 60 cents per kg. So it will give him an income of about uh, monthly roughly six, seven hundred ringgit. Not a very good income because the rubber price 
is currently very low. And Jonathan, yes, sir. Um, just to give you an idea as well, um, in terms of income, the poverty line income in Malaysia was changed from 980 to 2208 recently. And, and, and smallholder farmers and well below that. So Malaysia's updated poverty line is about 714 Australian dollars per month. That's that's not much at all. How does the global rubber trade rely on these smallholder farmers? If, if you look at the global rubber production, uh, anywhere between 80 to 90 percent of the uh, of the global rubber production is produced by smallholder farmers. In Malaysia, I would say between 80 to 90 percent are smallholder farmers, uh-huh. because a lot of the a lot of the plantations, um, and this has happened over time, has shifted towards palm oil. Of course, palm oil, yes. And I guess the other thing too is that it requires so much individual attention to tap those trees. It, this this is a slow and painstaking and very human job. It's a labour problem. That's the reason why most of the plantations switch. Because if you are looking at the oil palm sector, that means the harvesters can work from morning right to sunset. But for the rubber trees, you cannot do that. You start tapping and that's it for the day. And then uh, they are paid according to the number of trees. So if the price is good, they are given some premium. So latex is not really uh, something that they like to collect nowadays, you know, because climate change, if you tap the trees, you have to wait for two, three hours, then collect your latex. And if it rains, it's a total loss. Ah, because that will, that will dilute the latex as, you, as you're collecting it? Ah. Right, and overflow from the cup. So it's useless. They can't. They can't get anything from the, for the day. Yeah, that is hard. That is hard. And I bet. I bet somebody is making money from that rubber somewhere along the line. The world's largest rubber glove makers made a thousand six hundred and forty-six percent quarterly profit surge in twenty twenty because of COVID. That was not ah. even a significant move in income for smallholder farmers. So that's the divide that we're standing. It's it's a huge divide that we need to. Bridge. And it all begins here, uh, amongst these trees. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Amar Aziz, thank you so very much for for showing me round, and I'm I'm I might have a go at the rubber tapping. I, I will be careful. I will I will be patient and and kind to this tree. We will provide you with a sharp knife, you know, for to for the tapping. <laughs> sharper the better, Aziz. Sharper yes, the better. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's give this a try. Tapping rubber. <laughs> How hard can it be? Oh, the knife is sharp. Okay, now I'm just supposed to cut down from here. Just down here. Oh! International Airport. And now that I've got some thinking time, well, I can't help but feel that this city is is an accident of history. If it wasn't for rubber, this city wouldn't have its rich Tamil heritage or its Art Deco architecture. And if it wasn't for rubber and various other extractive industries, this city, well, it simply might not have been rich. It's a place that struck it lucky thanks to deep reserves of tin, its tropical climate, 
and rubber tree seeds imported from Brazil and the advent of transnational labour. And now? Well, rubber isn't the cash crop it was and there are fewer and fewer Malaysians willing to tap those trees for that milky white latex. But it's a history whose who's influence endures here and it's central to Malaysia's modern story. And there's no better place to see it all come together than right here in the capital, Kuala Lumpur. Attention passengers. This is Return Ticket, this time in Kuala Lumpur. You heard from Naj Arifin, Sunsu Speechley and Aziz and Amar Abdul. Producers are Hayley Crane, Alan Whedon and Rose Kerr. Technical production and musical theme by Brendan O'Neill. Executive producer is Rhiannon Brown. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Green. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.